This podcast, number 864, with author John Hagel III about his new book entitled The Journey Beyond Fear, Leverage the Three Pillars of Positivity to Build Your Success, is brought to you by Ashley Willens, author of a new book entitled Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. In this podcast with Ashley, we explore the intersection of money and time and how we make trade-offs between these valuable resources. Ashley speaks about the time traps, including technology and chasing money, as well as how to create time-smart routines and build time affluence. If you're interested in learning more about Ashley Willens and her new book, Time Smart, please visit her website at www. Awillens.com. That's A W H I L L A N S.com. And now for our featured podcast with author John Hagel about his new book, The Journey Beyond Fear Leverage the Three Pillars of Positivity to Build Your Success. Happy listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Tiburon, California this morning is John Hagel III. And John has many books out, but we're going to be speaking with him about the journey beyond fear, uh, leverage the three pillars of positivity to build your success. Good day to you, John. How are you doing? Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you on Inside Personal Growth, and <clears throat> our listeners come from all over the world. Uh, I always thank them, John, because without them, uh, I wouldn't have been here and lasted 15 years uh, and had so many listeners. And uh, again, thank you all for the comments, too, as well, the ones that you put up there uh, that I answer um, I so much appreciate that because that tells me you guys are listening and you're spreading the word. I also want to thank uh, uh, SoundCloud because we get so many uh, additional um, subscribers through there as well. So again, my little commercial this morning to the people out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And the audience continues to grow. But this is a fascinating book. And John, I'm going to let the listeners know a little bit about you. Uh, John Hagel III is an entrepreneur and renowned business strategist. He served as partner at McKinsey and Company, where he helped open the Silicon Valley office and launched two new practices, including the firm's electronic commerce practice. Uh, at Deloitte, he established and ran the Center for the Edge, a global research center which identifies emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda. Uh, he's been on a journey beyond fear in his own life, a journey that led him to Silicon Valley, where he has lived for the last 40 years. Although his work takes him to all parts of the world, he's also a prolific writer, and he has eight other books. And for all of those uh, individuals who want to learn more about John's other books, because there's many out there, just go to John Hagel, that's J-O-H-N-H-A-G-E-L.com. Visit his website. He's actually got an, uh, a new uh, website that he's coming up with, and that's the uh, Center for the Edge. Is that correct? Is that your, your Beyond the Edge? Beyondouredge.com. Beyondouredge.com. Um, yeah. Not fully up yet, right? Still working right. on it. But uh, go to the website, learn more about John. 
Um, he is definitely a prolific author, speaker, and somebody who sees around corners, I would say. Now, what I like, John, is the fact that a lot of authors aren't as vulnerable as you were in the introduction of the book. And thank you for doing that. And I think as we get a little bit older, you and I were sharing our ages. Um, it's important that we become a little bit more vulnerable and we tell our story um, because our story is who we are. And you speak in the introduction about how much you moved around with your father being an executive at Mobile Oil. Um, your mother was well-educated and she pursued a career at the State Department. Um, but because of your father and the number of times you guys moved around, um, she became a bit angry because she had to give up uh, her career. Um, and I know that this, no matter what happens in our lives, I mean, my childhood was dotted with a different story, but the story is really around the fear, but also around not being enough. Um, and, you know, I had the same not enough story, right? And um, it does influence us. It influences us to become uh, drivers, uh, to succeed, uh, to want to do things that maybe we, we wouldn't normally do. But if you would tell a little bit about that story and how it really influenced um, you and kind of your relationship to fear. Sure. Now, it's important to me to that that's part of the book in terms of my own journey beyond fear so that people can understand that I'm not just talking in the abstract. I've I've been through it myself and right. learned, learned a lot of lessons along the way. Um, you know, I, the childhood was challenging. Um, at one level, it was stimulating. I was seeing different countries every virtually every year, so had a global upbringing. But my mother did have anger issues, and it wasn't just that she had given up a career to be with my father. It turned out that as a child, she had had a lot of issues in, in being raised and uh, was angry about that as well. So she had anger already. It was intensified as we moved around, and um, she took it out on her children. I mean, I have a sister, uh, the two of us, uh, traveling the world with her, and she would just go into these rages uh, and basically... Uh, one of my early memories was her at the top of the stairs yelling that she wished I had never been born. That I was mm. such a burden. And life would be so much simpler without me. Um, and so it was a constant barrage of, you know, that I was not, I was a burden on her. I, my needs didn't matter. It was all about serving her needs. And then my father who was a gentle man. He, he uh, responded to this anger by, retreating by withdrawing he went to his study he went to his stamp collection and ultimately went into other things like alcohol to escape from from the anger but the bottom line is i felt abandoned here i was facing all this anger and nobody to protect me and because we were traveling around the world there was no extended family that i could turn to or no sustaining network of friends. My friends were rotating constantly depending on what country I was in. So it, it was a very hard time for me. And, it, you know, it, it basically for much of my life, I came, came away with the 
belief that my needs did not matter and that it was um, fear about, you know, that I wouldn't be supported and, and uh, protected in the way that I needed to be. And so it was, it was challenging, but it, it definitely left a, a strong mark on me and I think shaped a lot of my early life. Well, it it also sounded to me as if it was never being enough for your parents, or maybe your mother, um, maybe not your father so much, but your mother yeah. in particular. And <clears throat> that can leave an indelible imprint. Is there anything around that that you carried forward that you know today at your uh, uh, wise older age? Um, that you would relate to our listeners about, because we have a lot of authors that come on here and speak just about that topic, um, you know, because in the personal growth arena, it it is a big issue for, uh, I would say, almost everybody. But, you know, it depends on how bad it was. Yeah, well, I mean, it basically left me with the... Um the belief that again, my needs didn't matter. And my, my whole goal, I strived throughout my childhood to impress my parents. And, you know, they were both very uh, encouraging about academic work and uh, wanting me to pursue academic uh, degrees. And I did as much as I can to be a top student all the way through. But again, it didn't answer my need of having parents who really were there to support me and, and, uh, and show the love that I, I needed. So, but it left me with a, a belief that my role in life was to serve the needs of others, that it was all about just finding people who had a problem and, and helping them uh, and doing it. Uh, the other thing that it left me with was the view that emotions were dangerous, mm. you know, because the only emotions I was really exposed to were bad emotions of anger and abuse. And so I didn't want to engage in emotions with anybody. I just wanted to engage with the mind in terms of solving um, analytic problems and helping them to uh, come up with better answers. Well, and you became damn good at it. Um, (laughs) And so uh, a question on still on this line, um, are your mother and father still alive? No, they passed away. Okay. And have you or did you or were you able to um, try and meet and resolve some of those uh, uh, feelings that you had about uh, your mother with your mother? Um, Or was it just this long protracted thing that usually happens where even on her deathbed, you're not quite, um, it's not all resolved. That happens a lot. No, it's complicated. I mean, I did over my life come to recognize that she loved me very much in the best way she could. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't the way I needed to be loved. And, um, you know, I, I did have conversations with her when I was older about the anger that I experienced as a child and how hurtful it was. And she was in denial about it. She would, her response was, I was just too sensitive, that it wasn't uh, real anger, or, you know. And because of so, her childhood. Yeah. yeah and she, yeah. Had, she had had you know, similar issues as a child, but again, she was in denial about what 
harm it was causing. Yeah, it perpetuates, you know, it perpetuates from generation to generation. I know when people do histograms, um, they find in those histograms uh, repeating patterns uh, that mm-hmm. occur from generation to generation. So, you know, sometimes alcoholism skips a generation, uh, but then you'll see it reappear again. Um, you know, so it's really quite interesting when histograms are done and you go all the way back to great grandfather, father, uh, you know, in the lineage and, and you look up who they were and what they were all about. And it was pretty interesting. I've done it. I know. Um, now, you know, you, you transitioned and obviously quite, uh, successfully into this career in Silicon Valley for the last 40 years. Uh, and Silicon Valley is a pretty high pressure moving pl- place. Um, and many people that are there, um, you know, when you b- have a big, hairy, audacious goal and you step into sim- Silicon Valley to go do something, um, you can't say that there isn't some fear, uh, fear from competition, fear from getting it right. Uh, gathering investors, uh, dealing with other people's money. Uh, it comes from every area. And you state that human beings react to pressure and change in predictable ways. You obviously have watched the behavior of these individuals and you saw predictable ways in which uh, they react. How do they react that creates what I'm going to call adversity in their lives. You know, you've been with executives. That's what you do. You're a consultant. You get to hear the behind the scenes stories. that A lot of people don't get to hear. So (laughs) tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I'll say, first of all, that my experience while I'm based in Silicon Valley, I I work with clients all over the world. So I've got a global kind of uh, experience in terms of what, what the impact of fear is. And I would actually say the impact of fear is much greater outside Silicon Valley for reasons we can go into. But um, broadly, and and the reason for writing the book was that as I was traveling around the world, and this was three years ago, I was experiencing fear as the dominant emotion of everyone, senior leaders down in the front lines, out in the community. And the, the, Challenge. I think there there are reasons for fear. I think that we're in a more and more challenging world at one level. So I I view the fear as as understandable. But the problem is that fear, I think, is for all of us as humans, has certain natural kinds of consequences. One thing is we tend to shrink our time horizons. If we're afraid, we can't look ahead. We just focus on what's happening at the moment because. That's so scary. We, you know, we have to put all our attention on, on the what's happening at the moment. We become much more risk averse. Um, we adopt what I call a zero sum view of the world. You know, if you're just looking at the present, the, the resources that are available are given. It's on, the only question is who's going to get them, you or me. And so it's a battle to see who can get those resources. And, um, that leads to erosion of trust. You know, you may seem like a nice person, but hey, I know at the end of the day, it's only going to be one of us that gets these resources. And so I can't afford to trust you. And so people who are afraid become more and more short-term. They become more and more isolated and it becomes a vicious cycle. It reinforces reinforces the fear that 
you know, I'm isolated. I, I don't have anybody I can rely on. I, you know, I'm addressing all kinds of challenges at the moment. So <coughs> it really does create, I think, a, um, a, a, a very limiting situation that I don't think any of us want to want to be in. You choked me up with your fear thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, there is something to be around fear, you know. On the opposite side of fear, they say there are only two emotions, love and fear. <laughs> and, you know, you look at organizations like Southwest Airlines and they're, you know, when we look back to Herb Kelleher, it was all about love. Walk around, tell people how much you <coughs> appreciate them. And you mentioned to succeed in the journey that we need three essential tools, narratives, passion and platforms um if you would because this is the meat and potatoes of your book okay uh can you comment what new narratives we need to adopt to move beyond fear and what are the personal narratives institutional narratives geographical narratives and as you refer to them uh, movement-based narratives because the narratives are the stories we tell ourselves you know so yeah, so just to clarify, at least for me, um, they're not the stories we tell ourselves. I believe narratives and stories are very different. Okay. That's one of the challenges I have is, is clarifying what I mean when I talk about narratives. For me, stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end to them, uh, the end. And the story is about me, the storyteller, or it's about some other people, real or imagined. It's not about you. You can use your imagination, figure out what you would have done, but it's not about you. In contrast to me, a narrative is open-ended. There is no resolution yet. There's some kind of big threat or opportunity out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to help resolve this narrative. So I think it's very, it can be a, a powerful catalyst. I describe it as a catalyst to move beyond fear. If you can frame an opportunity-based narrative, a future that's driven by opportunity, that's inspiring and exciting, it will motivate you to, um, to uh, move ahead and look ahead. And it has a call to action. So you're not doing this just by yourself. You're doing this with others. So it, I, think I think it's it, important that for our listeners, you've distinguished between the story and the narrative in that the narrative has no end. In your context, the story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And maybe my reference was misappropriated, but I think many people run around with stories that never end as well. Uh, they don't, I mean, it. it's kind of like, Okay, I get that this narrative doesn't have an end. It's that's a great definition for it. Um, <clears throat> but the stories they tell themselves, and this isn't a debate; it's just a comment. Um, they literally they don't ever stop telling the same stories. I think they make stuff up, and then they begin to believe what they make up, and then they begin to live what they made up, um, and that becomes their story. You know. Um, it's the woe is me person, the per, you know, when, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, now, again, we all have different definitions in the psychology profession. 
personal narrative is a big topic mm-hmm. for psychologists. But when you when you when they ask about your personal narrative, it's tell me about your past. How did you get from where you are, were to where you are today? There's nothing about the future. It's all about how did you get to where you are today? That's your story. That's your personal narrative. Mm-hmm. For me, the narrative is all about the future. What is your view of the future? Is it primarily driven by a threat or opportunity? And if so, which threat or which opportunity? And do you have a call to action to others? Are you asking for help from others? Or are you trying to do this all by yourself? And yeah, so I, I, think that's, I think that is a huge distinction, and it's a great distinction for the book. Um, how do you recommend crafting a powerful opportunity-based narrative? Yeah, it's challenging. I think the first step, my experience, and I've done work with a lot of people on this, is first of all, most of us have not even articulated what our personal narrative is that Mm -hmm. we're living to today. And just that exercise of making it explicit, am I primarily driven in the future by a sense of threat or by opportunity? That's a big aha, because I think most people, at least again in my experience, are finding their personal narrative that they're living to is based on a view of a threat in the future. They're afraid of losing their job. They're afraid that their children are not going to get, uh, you know, the education and, and uh, success that they need, whatever the, the specifics are, but they're, they're feeling there's a threat. in. The well, future. so is it, is it running to something or from something? Well, again, I, I mean, if you have an opportunistic narrative, you're running toward something, something that you can feel emotionally into the future, right? I just did an interview with a gal, Feeling Forwards, in, uh, endorsed by Tony Robbins, where you take your emotions and you move them into the future. But if we're running to something that's opportunistic, our whole mindset is going to be different versus running from something that's like chasing us, the tiger that's chasing us, right? Um, and maybe that's the distinction I can come up with because yours is not fear-based. Yours isn't based on threat. Um, you know, it isn't the fight or flight kind of situation, but what you're saying is most of these executives, most of your life throughout the world seem to be running from something, uh, that maybe is going to affect their profitability or affect the number of employees they have or affect what, whatever it might be versus looking to move toward something. Would that be yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Although I, I, I certainly running from things is, is one response to fear, but I think many, if not most of the people that I know who feel fear are seeking to address the, the, the threat that they see. I mean, the executives are working really hard to get that next quarter, the next performance targets that they need to meet. And people in their in their daily lives are trying to address the threat, but it's very much just in the short term. What's What can I do in the short term that is going to help uh, address this threat? Versus the narrative, which is long term, which is looking into the future. Uh, the, opportuni- the opportunity based narrative is saying there no there's a big opportunity that's really exciting that we could head towards and it would help us to overcome the fear move beyond the fear i think we're we we're currently coming out of a time this pandemic we're at least seeing 
something on the horizon. But, you know, when you look at the trillions of dollars, this has cost countries worldwide, including organizations from employment to it's affected everything. Uh, you can see how one's mindset was, will it end, you know? Um, and I'm sure for many folks, it became very depressing, um, uh, monetarily, physically, uh, all kinds of ways. Any comment on just this last pandemic? Because uh, they claim this will not be our last. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not, but hopefully we'll have vaccines for all of these. But um, what did you see? Yeah, I think I'm going to generalize. There are exceptions, obviously. But as a generalization, what I'm seeing uh, in the past year, year and a half, is the senior leaders of institutions are very much focused. I mean, the, the buzzword that I hear all the time is resilience. Uh-huh. They want to be resilient. And what they mean by that, when I press them on, what do you mean by that? Oh, it means we want to bounce back to where we were get back to where we were, that's success versus viewing this as a catalyst to do something very different and target much bigger opportunities. It's all about getting back to where we were. And again, that to me, that's, that's the sign of fear. On the other side, um, in the front lines of organizations and in, in business in general, and there've been a number of articles written recently about this, I'm hearing that people are using this as, as a catalyst to really reflect on what is it that is meaningful and exciting to them and realizing that what they're doing now is not meaningful or exciting. Mm-hmm. And then the number of people who are leaving their jobs is escalating at a significant rate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You I know? agree with you on that one. Uh, it certainly is become a catalyst for people to rethink um, their finitude um, their lives, how they're leading their lives, uh, their consumptionism, uh, all kinds of things, right? And we are seeing shifts for the positive, uh, definitely for the positive. Um, I know personally, I lost two friends and two brothers during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, when you, you see that, um, and none of these people in my estimation were that old, right? Um, so <clears throat> it, it does change your perspective. Um, and it also changes your perspective about fear because the biggest fear is the fear of death. And I think when you meet that head on and you look at finitude, that's that's a unique one. And you mentioned that over a decade ago, in an effort to discover ways to overcome performance pressure, you undertook a study of the <clears throat> environments in which people achieve the most extreme and sustained improvement in their performance. And I think this is important for our listeners. What did you learn from the study and the people and um, what you saw out there from the pressures, let's use that word, because I think that is the operative word here, because usually pressure can bring on fear, or it can bring on the opposite. It can bring on, uh, as you say, our human potential to move out of fear and into an opportunity based on the pressure. 
right? Yeah. Now, usually when you think of pressure, it's like it's going to form a diamond, right? I call it constriction. What I've seen is some constriction through the pipeline, right? Um, so what did you learn from this? <clears throat> it was a big uh, eye-opener for me because I was looking at some very diverse environments, everything from extreme sports to online war games where you know, you're under a lot of pressure, you're going to die if you make the wrong move, at least virtually, um, and in, in the business world. And what I found is despite all the diversity of those environments, the participants in those environments had, all of them had a very specific form of passion. And I've come to call it the passion of the explorer. Mm -hmm. And it has three different um, attributes or characteristics to it. One is the people who have this passion have a long-term commitment to making an increasing impact in a specific domain that they're really excited about and committed to, more and more impact. Second, and I think this is important in terms of the fear issue, they have what I call a questing disposition, which is when confronted with an unexpected challenge, their reaction is excitement. Oh my goodness, this is wonderful. This is an opportunity to find a way to have more impact. What could I do? And then the third attribute is these people with Passion of the Explorer have a connecting disposition. Their reaction when confronted with one of these challenges is who else can I connect with who could help me get to a better answer faster? Because that's my goal is to have more and more impact. And so they're extremely well connected. And I think it's an interesting combination. And I, I, one thing I, I emphasize a lot is I'm not talking about eliminating fear. And one of the stories I tell is I it was with big wave surfers. And when they're paddling out to ride the next big wave, they're afraid. Oh, yeah. They know, they know that people, you not only can fall off your surfboard, but people have died riding those waves. Right. It's right. very scary. Any but extreme sport. Right. Highlining, yeah. all of it. You know, it's... Uh, yeah. You know, Stephen Kotler's been on here, uh, the guy that studied this probably the most. Kotler has got to be the the best at this, you know, and he would say in the the last book, which was The Art of Impossible. um, I don't know if you've read that one or not, but just like what you're saying, because he studied so many people in extreme sports, didn't matter if it was skiing or surfing or uh, in everything, right? And the neurochemical, the chemicals that are being released in the brain for people to do that are completely um, uh, different than potentially maybe how you and I might might approach that. But he did he did give a little bit of a insight here, John. He said, "Focus is for free. Curiosity is the next step." He actually took and made a string curiosity the curiosity then look for your three passions and you talk about this the passion matrix find out where those three passions are and then define your purpose then your purpose ends up allowing you to define these goals the goals then allow you to define some proximal goals to be able to achieve that and then after that you then have to apply grit and determination to stay the course in the process of that so what he found during almost everybody was, hey, there's curiosity, 
right? Uh, anybody out there, you're speaking about people with passion. People with passion have curiosity. That's one thing that keeps them going. They're very curious individuals usually. They're always trying to solve a problem or do something. But I like how he strung it together. And if you would speak about the passion from the two dimensions, time frame and improvement of the goal and the differences you notice in working with passionate people, because that is part of your passion uh, matrix. You, you call it why the passion of the explorer is so powerful. That was one of your chapters, actually, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, again, I, I focus on a very specific form of passion because, uh, in my experience, everybody has a different definition of passion. And I've actually tried to develop a taxonomy of passion using, in classic consulting fashion, a two-by-two matrix. Right. Uh, and on one, one dimension, focusing on the time frame, is it a short-term focus or a long-term focus? And then focusing on what's your improvement goal? Is it uh, primarily to learn in the form of just absorbing existing knowledge? Or is it to have more and more, contribute to have more and more impact in whatever you're passionate about. And I think that that can differentiate significantly uh, many different forms of passion, but I'm focused on one form, the passion of the explorer. And uh, my belief at least is we all have the potential for that passion. Oh, of course. Um, well, there, I get a lot of pushback from many people saying, come on, John, you know, some of us are capable of passion but most of us just want to be told what to do and have the security of a good income. That's mm -hmm. all we want. And I believe well, they haven't found anything they're passionate about. And some people go all the way through their life without that. And that's unfortunate. Um, well, and, and also they live in environments that are discouraging them from passion. Yes. Schools discourage you from passion, your work environment. You're deeply, if you're passionate in your work environment, you ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. take a lot of risks, you deviate from this assigned script. That's not good. Get rid of that passion. Just listen to your boss and follow the instructions and do the job as instructed. And yeah. And I think if you live, if you're engaged in an entrepreneurish uh, organization where that kind of behavior is seen as positive, that's good. We don't have as many of those as we think we do. Um, but um, because, you know, we could go back to the whole story about the command and control um, organization, and you would think that they would be gone, but I actually work inside of them like you, so I see that they are not gone. Um, but it takes a very big cultural shift uh, farting, starting from the top down to want to make those kind of decisions because command and control is about fear. Let's face it, at, 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 its, yeah. at its level, you know, you're speaking about fear here, right? Moving beyond fear. If you're trying to get these CEOs to move beyond fear, they're the ones that have to start because they're the ones that are actually filtering that all the way down through the organization. You can't make a move till you get approval, blah, 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 whatever the hell it is. And that really uh, um, extinguishes the passion in so many people uh, that yeah. might have it. You know, I, I, I would just say to that comment on that, one of the key objectives or hopes that I have for the book is 
for decades, we've had a whole set of initiatives that have fallen under the broad umbrella of human potential, human growth. You know, we all want to help individuals address challenges and obstacles they're facing in their lives. Right. In parallel, over the same period, we've had a whole other set of initiatives around broadly under the umbrella of social change. It's changing the institutions we have, the communities, the environments, the economy. Interesting thing, those two sets of initiatives have rarely, if ever, intersected. It's either all about the individual or it's all about the environment. My belief and a key goal, again, with the book is to recognize that if we're really serious about the journey beyond fear, we can't do, just do this as isolated individuals. We have to work to change the environments that we're in that will encourage us to make the journey beyond fear versus trying to stop us and hold us back and say, no, be afraid. That's what you should be. Well, it, it's true. There's the personal level and then there's organizational level. And like you say, um, if you can't make the shift where the people work into an organization that embraces um, uh, allowing people to express their passion and uh, explore their passions and do what they'd like to do, then you're going to be hard pressed to to change the outcome of the organization. Right. Uh, so you state that we can gain more insight into the tight relationship between passion and reason by looking at five things that we need to come together before we can achieve our full potential. Um, can you discuss the five things that we need to come to that we would need to come together that need to come? You just talked about two of them. Right. Mm. So. Well, so. The key here is, again, I'm trying to address a lot of resistance that I encounter, which is many people believe passion and reason are in opposition to each other. You're either passionate or you're rational. You can't be both. Which is it? And I believe that actually we need to have both. Passion and reason together are going to be what allows us to achieve our potential and more of our potential. Um, and I, I went through five different el- things that uh, where the passion and reason can come together. Um, just to, one of them is focus. If, you, if you're really going to achieve more of your potential, you have to have focus. You can't just be spread over everything all at once. Great. And passion gives you the ability to focus on the thing that you're really excited about. It really right. forces you to identify what is that exciting thing that I'm, really going to focus that wildly important goal that one thing you want to do that passion that purpose because yeah you ask people you also say help people to relate to their passion by asking them the question that will inspire them to see the intersection of their passion and purpose in life i was just talking about that with kotler going from our three passions distilling them down and creating a purpose around that something that's driving us can you share some of those questions that will ignite us finding our passion? Because, you know, we as individuals, we out here, I have found, John, doing this for more than the 15 years of just being on the air. Um, I've been in this field forever and ever. Um, people need prompts. They need support. Uh, they need because they don't know those questions. But here is someone who's asked those questions. You put it in a book. And I think even if you come up with some of them, 
it, it helps my listeners on the other end of this who listen to these podcasts actually go, great, I'm going to go out and buy the book because it's in there and that's what we're <laughs> going to tell them to do. But on the uh, other hand, sometimes they never buy the book, but I still want to help them. <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. But I, I will say it's, it's challenging. I don't want to say it's easy. Um, I, you know, and it differs depending on whether you're younger or older. I had two daughters. My only advice to them when they were growing up was um, keep looking to find an area that really excites you and, and don't stop until you find that area and then find a way to connect with it. So it's looking outside yourself, really exploring and searching to see what is it that really be curious curious yeah continue to be curious continue to be curious and then when you find it find a way to make a living from it yeah but then if you're older okay you've you've maybe had a lot of experiences then i think it's more looking within and reflecting on you know throughout my life what are the things that have given me really real excitement what are the things where i got really stimulated and excited and fulfilled and what were those things and often they may be many several different things i talk in my book about my journey and a lot of different things that excited me through my life but when i reflected on it i found that there was a common element in all those different things they seemed very different at one level but there was a common theme a thread in, in the passion a thread exactly. That yeah. was my that was my passion. That was yeah. what was really stimulating me. What would and, you tell people though, John? Because you've had this happen, I've had it happen. We find that passion, and while it's a huge driver, we don't know how much money we can make at it. And I'm going to bring money into the equation. Yeah. And so we go, well, you know what? I have this job, it's paying me X. I'm happy and support. I'm going to put it aside because there's a fear about going for it. Yeah. And that fear is very real. They're supporting children. They're trying to do whatever they're doing and they never get out of the, the rat on the wheel situation. It just goes around. Um, I, I know this is a tough question, but what advice might you provide somebody who's listening to this now who feels like they're doing this, little rat on the wheel situation and they've had passions and they've let them go. Yeah. Well, um, I, I certainly, again, recognize the challenge and we all want to make a good living both for ourselves and our family and those that matter to us. But on the other side, if we're consumed, if we're spending our life to your point earlier, there's been, you know, finite life here. We're not going to be living forever. Why spend our lives doing the things that don't excite us and that actually make us stressed or uh, depleted? And I think my advice, I'm, I'm a big fan of what I call small moves, smartly made, can set big things in motion. If you have found your passion, I'm not suggesting that you quit your job tomorrow and go somewhere else and maybe not earn anything. Mm -hmm. I'm suggesting, first of all, do a search to see if there are other jobs that really could address the passion that excites you. And if there aren't, start something on the side. You know, in your evenings and weekends, 
And I think, again, I'm an inherently an optimist, and I believe we're in an environment today where you can build a business in a very short period of time with very limited money if you're really passionate and excited about it. So start on the side, see what you can do, and if you can start to generate the revenue and income that you need, okay. That and I see that. so many young people today, John, and I know you'd echo this, they're finding passions in ways, you know, I, I watch these guys who are taking plastic out of the ocean and making all these great products and they're cleaning up the ocean at the same time and they're a nonprofit. And I own a nonprofit and I know what it's like to have this passion around a nonprofit. And I would encourage anybody, whether it's, you know, saving the animals to helping clean up the environment, if your passion is that and you can't find enough time to go do it on your own, then get involved with an organization that is doing it and donate your time. Because having that outside thing that keeps that passion alive, even if it's with a community of other people that already started it, I think it's very valuable. Um, it's valuable for your sanity. It's valuable for the world. Uh, it's valuable to you because you're contributing back. It's really, what can I give back? Right. Um, and I think that is really, really important. But to your point earlier, unless you're getting something in return for giving it, giving it back, you're not going to pursue your passion 24 hours a day or right. 18 hours a day. Correct. And my belief is we all as human beings should find a way to pursue our passion in all our waking hours. And yes, earn a living from it. And that's the key. Ultimately. Agreed. Agreed. And that was the question I asked you was, how do I make that jump? And you gave me a great answer, which was small things can turn into bigger things. And there isn't anybody that knows that is somebody like myself, who's been like a serial entrepreneur, had tons of downs and some ups and in-betweens and all over the place, um, lost millions of dollars doing things that I probably shouldn't have done, but it is the way that it is. Um, and I always tell people it's either a learning lesson, you look at it, you can't look at it from a fear standpoint. Um, and so that's the way you, you move forward. Now, John, you speak about learning platforms. That's one of the key areas. And learning platforms to most people are going to be thinking, well, you know, it's an LMS um, or something like that. But you look at the role in amplifying our impact and accelerating our learning and performance improvement. Speak with our listeners about um, the aggregation of these platforms and how we can use these platforms for improving performance while connecting our narratives and our passion. Now, obviously, we know social media is huge. Those are the, some of the platforms, right? Um, but there are other platforms. I, I mentioned one, I think, to you when we first did the little one about Circle.so, which was a company that's out there bringing communities of people together with common passions and so on. And we're seeing all this. Uh, there's a new one called Maven that just came out in Silicon Valley that I just learned about. And then there's Teachable. And there's, there's all these uh, Udemy. Um, I mean, my listeners of anybody probably know where most of these platforms are because they're either on them learning something or they're doing something. But it, I do agree with you that this is probably 
if there is one thing that came out of Silicon Valley that will transform our world will be these platforms. Yes, and, and to be clear, at least my belief is this is an untapped opportunity. The platforms you mentioned, by and large, are not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So Udemy, for example, uh, those are courses. You can sign up for lectures and courses. At one level, yes, that's learning. That's just listening to teacher and sharing existing knowledge. The learning I'm talking about, the most important form of learning, is creating new knowledge, knowledge that never existed before. And you can only do that by acting through action, acting together. And the key for me in these learning platforms is, and it's a key theme in the book, is the way we learn best is not just isolated as individuals, but as small communities. Communities, yeah. No, no, small groups. Communities can be thousands of people. Mm. I'm talking about a small group of three to 15 people at most, an impact, what I call an impact group, where you form deep trust-based relationships with each other and a commitment to learn faster and have more and more impact in whatever your passions are and creating platforms that will help these small groups come together into shared workspaces and then network into broader communities. Yes. But the core unit is that impact group. Mm-hmm. And again, the focus is on learning and the form of creating new knowledge through action, not listening to teachers. It's acting and learning from the action. What's, What's a good example of that that you've seen? Do uh, you have an example for our listeners? No. Of, the, I think, of, I mean, of an impact group that maybe you were part of or, uh, or, or yeah. somebody was part of that actually had new learnings come out of it that then inspired yeah, yeah. something positive to happen. No, well, this has been a, something that emerged in, in a lot of my research in many different environments, but I'll go back to big wave surfing. Everybody thinks big wave surfing is a solo sport. There's just one person on that surfboard. That's all there is. It's an isolated individual. But if you really look at the big wave surfers and, and see what they do, they formed a small impact group on the, on the beach where they connect with other surfers who share their passion and excitement mm. about surfing really big waves. And they're constantly supporting and challenging each other to take action to get to that next big achievement. Mm. And so I think that's a really interesting example of these, these impact groups coming together. And I did work in, in business environments and where you see extent, sustained extreme performance improvement. It's front lines that have organized into small work groups. Three to fifteen people who share very, that very important, important point. And I think then being able to share that new knowledge uh, with lots of others so that it propels forward. Yes. Um, you mean because look, even the guys sitting on the beach with the small groups, there's other big wave surfers out there that want to have that knowledge that aren't in those groups. Yeah. Um, so, however, they can share that. Now, in the conclusion of your book, you state that the pressure will only persist as the years continue and the pressure will only become greater. Uh, some of us will burn out or will drop out. Um, and we're seeing that already. We're seeing the effects of that. I think COVID accelerated that a bit. What advice would you give those on the front line under the most pressure um, from not getting to this burnout or dropout? 
Yeah, well, again, I think it's it's viewing it as a catalyst for reflection to say, don't just keep striving to keep going despite the burnout. Step back and reflect on, is this really what I want to be doing? As I mentioned before, I think the positive note is in the current COVID situation, the number of workers who are stepping back and saying, no, <laughs> this is not what I was meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. I need to find something that really excites me and motivates me. Because by the way, if you have that passion of the explorer, you don't burn out. You are excited. It gives you energy. It keeps you going if you've got more challenges. And so I think using this as a catalyst to say, enough already. What is it that really excites me? The burnout is, a, is, a, is an indicator that I'm not doing something that excites me. So, well, you know what? John, I'm glad that uh, you're you haven't burnt out, um, <laughs> and that that this journey bond fear was written. Is this your ninth book? No, eighth book. Eighth, eighth book. book. Okay, so we'll say this yeah. is the eighth. So obviously, somebody with as much passion to write eight books. Um, uh, I only know one other person uh, who's up in the uh, valley, and I think he's on book number twenty-four. Uh, so it's a lot, takes a lot to write a book. So congratulations. I know I've written two, not eight. Um, but I really appreciate this. Now in parting, I always like to leave our listeners with, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot this morning, last hour and 15 minutes. Um, what are some of the most important lessons you've learned from your 40 years of working in high pressure situations and actually, you know, really being in, in the Silicon Valley? that you would say, if there was a takeaway here from this morning, what are the three things that you'd sum this up with? Wow. Um, You know, I I think, again, from my research around how the world is changing, I think on one side, it is creating mounting performance pressure on all of us, and that's generating fear. At the same time, these same forces are generating exponentially expanding opportunities. We can create much more value with far less resource, far more quickly than would have ever been imaginable before. But the challenge is that if we're driven by fear and the mounting performance pressure is is generating that fear, if we're driven by that fear, we can't even see the opportunities, much less pursue them. They're invisible to us. We're just focused on the challenge of the moment, how to get through the next day. Um, And so I think that... um, it's the reason why we need to find a way to move beyond the fear. And I, I again, would emphasize one of the key lessons I've learned is that you're not going to eliminate the fear. It's going to stay there. We are in a challenging world. There are all kinds of challenges to be afraid of. Absolutely. But we need to cultivate the emotions that are going to help us to move beyond it. And that's what will drive success. That's a great summation for this book, and it's an opportunity for everybody to not, as you said, don't just take the pages and read them, find a passion, (laughs) okay, and then start working on the passion. And I think one of the obstacles, uh, if I might add to this just in the end, is, you know, kind of our own biases. Uh, You know, we don't really realize how strong the subconscious mind is. And how it has been programmed. And once you get into the subconscious mind, if you can actually reprogram and rewire, 
uh, you can move beyond it. And much of that fear is associated with that because that's happening on automatic pilot. We got a conscious mind and we got a subconscious mind. So uh, think about what you're doing on automatic pilot. And um, I ask people, uh, because I'm involved with the, the guys at Solve Next, they have a term, which I think is really quite, it's called think wrong. And that doesn't mean to think uh, bad. It means to rethink how you think. Um, and I think that's most important as well. John, a pleasure having you on. We're going to have a link to your website. We're going to have a link to Amazon to go pick up the book. As John mentioned this morning, this will be coming out in an audio as well. They're working on it. But for now, you got a Kindle version and a hardback version, uh, both up at Amazon. We appreciate you listening today. We appreciate you taking a look at your passions uh, beyond your fears and a way to move beyond that. John Hagel III, appreciate you. Thank you, sir, so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was a great conversation.